This podcast is a story of the attack on a party of police officers by Ned Kelly and his gang in 1878 at Stringybark Creek. The narrative has been developed from historical sources. They are reminiscences of a Victorian mounted constable, a narrative of the Kelly gang and other bushrangers by Thomas McIntyre, evidence from the 1881 Royal Commission on the Police Force in Victoria, historical guidance from the Victoria Police Museum, and content produced as part of the Stringybark Creek Memorial Site. Six months before Thomas McIntyre walked bloodied and wounded out of the bush after being attacked, Ned Kelly had an encounter with another policeman. This incident would set off a two-year period of crime that became known as the Kelly Outbreak. On the 15th of April 1878, Constable Alexander Fitzpatrick went to the Kelly family home to arrest Ned Kelly's younger brother, Dan Kelly, who, like his older brother, had a warrant out for his arrest. Dan Kelly was having dinner when Fitzpatrick banged on the door. He announced he'd come to make the arrest, but surprisingly allowed the 16-year-old to finish his meal before taking him into custody. Also at the house was Ellen Kelly, Dan Kelly's mother, and a number of children of the Kelly clan. Two other men, Bricky Williamson and William Skillion, were also there. According to Fitzpatrick's evidence in the 1881 Royal Commission on the Police Force in Victoria, he got into an argument with Ellen Kelly over arresting her son. A few minutes later, Ned Kelly rushed in and shot at him. The bullet missed, but Ellen Kelly smashed Fitzpatrick's helmet over his eyes with a shovel. As he squeezed the helmet upright, Ned Kelly shot him in the wrist. Williamson and Skillion rushed in, also armed with revolvers. Fitzpatrick reported the incident and the police raided the Kelly home. They arrested Ellen Kelly, Williamson and Skillion. The brothers, however, were nowhere to be seen. Now wanted for the attempted murder of Fitzpatrick, Ned Kelly fled into the bush where he and Dan Kelly evaded capture for the next six months. Despite the police's best efforts, finding the Kelly brothers was an enormous challenge. Their biggest problem was the sheer size of the police district. In July 1878, the government joined three police jurisdictions, the Kilmore, Beechworth and Upper Goulburn, together into one massive area, over 28,000 square kilometres in size, known as the Northeastern District. Approximately 100 officers across 49 stations were responsible for a district that was almost three times the size of the entire modern-day Melbourne metropolitan area. Most of the country was churning hills and valleys, covered in a thick blanket of eucalyptus trees and scrub. This was the kind of almost impenetrable country that would swallow a person whole, never to be seen again. But it was the perfect hiding place if you knew the country well enough. And Ned Kelly did. Kelly knew every road, route, hill and tree. Most of the police had nowhere near the same level of knowledge. They were often moved from station to station and as a result weren't able to develop as intimate an understanding of the countryside. The police also had to contend with a complete lack of secrecy. The two brothers had a large network of family, friends and supporters throughout the area that supplied them with information on police operations. Outside of food and shelter, accurate intelligence on the police's movements provided by this network was the most important need for the brothers. Eventually, the many hours of hard work and resources came up with a lead that either one or both of the brothers could be in the area around the head of the King River, near Greta. 
Superintendent John Sadlier knew the police had to increase their efforts to find the fugitives, who'd now been on the run for months. Two parties of police would search up and down the King River and neighbouring areas between Greta, about 270 kilometres northeast of Melbourne, and Mansfield, 80 kilometres further south. The two parties would meet at the Hedeye Police Station and from there continue the search. Superintendent Sadlier chose Sergeant Michael Kennedy as the man to lead the team from Mansfield. To join him, Kennedy recommended Constable Thomas McIntyre, whom he'd worked with extensively on the search for the Kellys, and Constable Michael Scanlon, whom Kennedy had also worked with, and who had an excellent knowledge of the country their search would cover. Sadlier ordered that Constable Michael Lomigan also be included in the party, as he could identify Ned Kelly. These four men would head for Stringybark Creek in the Wombat Ranges, about 30 kilometres from Mansfield. In the story of Ned Kelly, Stringybark Creek is the point of no return. He became the most wanted criminal in the country for the crimes he and his gang committed there. The four policemen are far less well known, although what happened to them after they rode out of Mansfield is perhaps no less extraordinary. McIntyre, Kennedy, Scanlon and Lonigan were all born in Ireland and, like so many others, had migrated to Australia searching for opportunity. Constable Thomas McIntyre was born in Belfast and served in the Royal Irish Constabulary for three years before migrating to Australia. He was a teacher before joining the police force in 1869, where he had an unblemished police record after nine years of service. Sergeant Michael Kennedy was a highly respected policeman. He had served in the Dublin Metropolitan Police in Ireland and quickly built a good reputation when he joined Victoria Police in 1864. He was recognised for his superb level of service with a promotion to sergeant in 1877 following the arrests of a number of notorious criminals in the Mansfield area. According to McIntyre, Kennedy had a strong personality and force of character that would see him reach high position within the police. He was also a skilled bushman, a rarity amongst police at that time. Of the men in the party, he was the one to perhaps match Kelly's knowledge of the land. Kennedy had celebrated his 36th birthday only a few days before the group left for Stringybark. He was husband to wife Bridget and had five children, all less than 10 years old. Mary, Rosanna, Catherine, Lawrence and James. They had a baby, John, who died in 1877. Constable Michael Scanlon had a reputation as an excellent policeman. He had trained as a teacher in Ireland before migrating to Australia, where he joined the police. He was unmarried when the party left for Stringybark Creek and had no family in Australia. His only companion was a beloved retriever that was left to a friend should he not return. Constable Thomas Lonigan migrated to Australia in 1870 with his wife Charlotte and young daughter Emily. He joined Victoria Police in 1871 and was well regarded. He set off from Mansfield less than a week before his birthday but feared he wasn't going to celebrate it. Lonigan had met Kelly the year before in 1877 when he helped transport Kelly, then under arrest, from the lock-up in Benalla. There was a nasty altercation when Kelly tried to break free and Lonigan had to subdue him. Legend has it that after the fight, Kelly threatened that he'd never shot a man before, but if he did, Lonigan would be the first. Lonigan, as per McIntyre's description of him, was a generally quiet man with a troubled appearance. He left for the mission with a feeling of dread. He believed he would never see his wife or their four children, 
Emily, Catherine, Ernest or Violet again. At dawn on the 25th of October 1878, the party rode out of Mansfield. McIntyre would later write in his manuscript a true narrative of the Kelly gang, a feeling of optimism as the group left, recounting the morning they departed that the night before had been frosty and the air of the early morning was keen and bracing, but as the sun rose it became warm, making one feel that it was good to be alive. Unfortunately, the secrecy of the police's departure was short-lived. News that a patrol had been sent out had worked its way through Mansfield within hours. An ex-convict named Lynch had reported the news of the search party to Ned and Dan Kelly by that evening. Not even a full day into their mission, the four policemen had no idea how much danger they were now in. Kennedy, Scanlon, Lonigan and McIntyre travelled northeast from Mansfield into the Wombat Ranges. The country was rough. A tumble of hills and gullies smothered in trees. The men were isolated out in the bush. A long way from help if anything were to go wrong. They were in plain clothes, unarmed with their police issue revolvers, as well as a Spencer rifle that Kennedy had borrowed from a senior constable who was escorting a gold shipment, and a double-barrelled shotgun lent to them by a Church of England clergyman, which they intended to use to hunt food. McIntyre was surprised they were carrying the Spencer rifle. Kennedy said that he didn't like the look of Kelly and wanted to be prepared. Tired after riding since around five o'clock that morning, the group made the Stringybark Creek campsite near three o'clock in the afternoon on the 25th of October. The camp was set within a large clearing, circled by masses of trees. The only other sign of civilization was an old burnt-out hut. The group set up their only shelter, a single tent, near the northwest corner of the clearing. According to McIntyre's record of the area, standing at the entrance of the tent looking east, you would see two fallen logs intersecting, one fallen almost exactly east to west, the other north to south, making a kind of fence. About 60 metres beyond the tent was a creek, and if you look to your right to the south, there was a large patch of long grass and rushes, almost one and a half metres high. It was a quiet, remote place, tucked deep into the bush. The party began setting up the campsite and making what would be their home for the next few days. The plan was to patrol the surrounding area and hopefully find some sign of the Kellys. Unfortunately for the police, they had no idea how close they were to the men they were looking for. Despite six months of intensive searching, all the manpower, covert surveillance and intelligence gathering, the search party had, without realising it, picked a campsite that was a couple of kilometres from where Ned and Dan Kelly had been hiding out. They had stumbled right into the middle of Kelly's lair. The Kelly's camp was discovered northwest of Stringybark Creek only after the tragic events that were to unfold. They'd been mining for gold, where police found about 20 acres of cleared land and a heavily fortified hut built of timber slabs. Due to the density of the bush and the immense size of the country, and too few men to search it, it was not surprising this hideout wasn't found earlier. 
Most concerning for the police was the discovery of bullet holes scattered in the trees surrounding the camp. The Kellys had been practising their shooting. Conversely, by McIntyre's own admission in his manuscript, the police received little firearms training. It was not actually unheard of for some police to have never fired a gun in their lives. In an excerpt of the Gerildery letter that McIntyre included in his manuscript, Kelly said that he'd found the police's tracks on the 25th of October, likely only hours after the search party had left them. Once Ned Kelly had found the policeman's tracks, he went back to his camp and informed his brother Dan, who went to investigate further. As the police were setting up the camp, Kennedy took the Spencer rifle down to the nearby creek. He was gone for a couple of hours. It was later learned that he was being watched at this time. Kennedy was followed back to the Stringy Bark camp, where the rest of the police party were discovered and appeared well armed. Upon returning to camp, Kennedy gave McIntyre a turn with the rifle, telling him to head to the creek and see if he could shoot some kangaroos. McIntyre, excited to use a gun he'd never used before, went down. However, he didn't find any kangaroos and headed back to camp disappointed. The search party went to sleep exhausted from a taxing day of riding. Sleep was hard to come by that night. It was cold, exposed to the elements. The only comfort the men had was an oil cloth over the hard ground, just a sheet of oiled material to keep them dry. It was an uncomfortable introduction to what life would be like for the duration of the search. McIntyre kept warm by the fire whenever he could. As soon as the sun rose at around 10 to 5 the next morning, the men were up, thankful that the night had passed and for the warming sun. After breakfast, Kennedy and Scanlon set off on their first patrol. Recalling the morning of the 26th in his manuscript, McIntyre wrote that as he was riding out, Kennedy said to him, Mac, don't be uneasy if we're not home tonight. The men disappeared into the trees, riding north. Lonigan was put in charge of managing and feeding the horses. McIntyre was responsible for doing something about the awfully uncomfortable tent. In an effort to make it somewhat bearable, he improvised a mattress with ferns and long grass. Satisfied he'd improved the group's living conditions, he made some bread on a makeshift table of tree bark. Lonigan took some time to relax and read. For most of the day, it was a very domestic setting as the two men established themselves at the campsite. At midday, Lonigan said he heard something, a strange noise coming from the creek. McIntyre hadn't heard anything. He headed down to the creek with a shotgun to investigate, believing it would be a wombat or maybe the kangaroos Kennedy had seen the day before. He found neither, but did find some parrots. He shot a couple and took them back to camp for dinner. Firing the weapon shows how far away the search party thought they were from the Kelly brothers. When McIntyre returned, he noticed Lonigan was unsettled. He was tensely quiet and had put on his revolver. The afternoon passed without incident, but McIntyre could feel Lonigan's discomfort. He remained silent, even for him, and kept his gun close. Perhaps his last encounter with Ned Kelly was playing on his mind. Nearing five o'clock in the evening, the two men built a fire at the intersection of the two fallen logs, not only to prepare for the cold night ahead, but also to use as a guide for Kennedy and Scanlon. McIntyre, his back to the long grass and rushes, 
boiled the billy over the flames. Lonigan stood on the opposite side. The two men stared quietly into the flames as the afternoon began to dim. Pile up! Hold up your hands! Split the silence. McIntyre turned to see four men emerging from the rushes, guns drawn. He recognised immediately the man on the far right, Ned Kelly. McIntyre's own guns, the revolver and the shotgun, were both in the tent, too far away to run to. Unarmed, he raised his hands. Lonigan ran. He raced towards the creek, frantically trying to open the revolver pouch and draw his weapon. As he looked over his shoulder, Kelly shot him through his right eye. Lonigan stumbled and fell heavily to the ground. Oh, Christ, I'm shot, he cried. Kelly and the three other men rushed at McIntyre and took him hostage. You can find out more about the Stringybark Creek incident at the Stringybark Creek Memorial Site, located about 40 minutes' drive northeast of Mansfield. There you can find detailed information about the policeman and how the attack unfolded.